Patience is a virtue, it is said. I do not know by whom. I know it's a, a virtue of which I do not have enough and for which I am never looking for a greater supply than I have. <laughs> it's not one of the four cardinal virtues, prudence, justice, temperance, or fortitude, nor of the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. But it is a virtue which might be said to be the key to all the other virtues. It's a virtue of a kind of imposed passivity. To be patient is to be a patient, and to be a patient even today is to be one who suffers, if not in the physical sense, at least in the sense that one who suffers is one who is acted upon not one who acts. And for all of us, we would rather be actors than those who are acted upon. Now, we conceive our lives very much in terms of action and our ability to shape the active part of our lives. And if our life is at all important, and I hope it is in our eyes, so is our time. I think we all know this. Whatever we do with our time and whatever our worth measured in power, prestige, or possessions, we know deep down that we matter if time matters to us. Driving out to the airport yesterday, we breezed past the big tarpaulin-draped orange signs, which, when unveiled, will make the pathway to O'Hare a parking lot, if you like, once again. They say there are only two seasons in Illinois. This is still winter, by the way, in Illinois. Construction and obstruction. And construction means obstruction. It means watching your life pouring out before you as you sit becalmed in a stagnant swamp of steel and concrete. Patience. No, if we matter at all, our time matters, every minute of it. And if there is ground to be covered, then time is of the essence. The sooner we get from A to B, the better. Even when we're out for a Sunday drive, and remember when families had time to do that, just go for a drive on a Sunday together, soaking in God's good creation. Even then, heaven help us if the family ahead of us is driving five miles an hour below the speed limit. You will certainly see my blood pressure spike in inverse relation to the speedometer. So, it's about patience. Now, one way of asking that question is the question that is posed in the 17th chapter of the book Exodus, which is the beginning of the the story, the saga, that is taken up by us again in the book Numbers. The Pentateuch is not widely acknowledged to be the foundation for the whole of Scripture, and I think I share in the indifference that is presented to that. Yet every time the lectionary leads one back to that part of the Old Testament, I am astounded at how much is said there, even in the first three chapters of Genesis. In the 17th chapter of the book Exodus, the question is posed to the wandering people of God by the wandering people of God, is the Lord among us or not? And that is where we were last week, more or less a chapter. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel 
and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The people of God, Abraham's seed, and that is our ancestors, not in the flesh, but in the spirit, which is all that counts, our ancestors are grumbling, they're quarreling, they're quetching, as my own Jewish mentors would say. They're quetching about water, at least that is the presenting issue, but it is about much more than that. It is about the question, is the Lord among us or not? Expectations have been high. Just a few days ago, they have been seen more water than they ever imagined, seawater, the Red Sea, as it parted to allow them to walk to freedom, and then came crashing in on their enemies. They're free. Egypt, their 400 years of exile, has done for God's people what it always does. It incubates them. It allows their identity to crystallize and their numbers to grow. They have been dammed up, if you like, behind some obstacles. To use the hydrological analogies, which I like to indulge in this Lent, it is as if they suddenly reached the high water line and the clear mountain pond became a waterfall, cascading over the slope, rushing downhill, fed by the force of gravity to begin cutting deep channels through solid rock. Now, what has happened after that rush of deliverance What has happened? The momentum has stopped. They are in the valley now. And the river does what rivers do when the gradient has been reduced to just this side of zero. They meander. Water never flows in a straight line over level ground. You may have noticed that. It meanders. It follows this snake-like path going back and forth like this. The reason it does that is it is water in a, flowing in a stream is looking even calm on the surface, really fed by inner vortices, inner corkscrews within it, which are interacting to give it a momentum which is never seen, but which is the momentum that makes that river curl back and forth instead of going in a straight line. That's about as much of that as I'm going to try to explain now. But what it allows and causes the river to do is to cut and recut these channels through the plain. The river never seems sure of its path, but is always shaving away at its banks, testing its boundaries, opening and closing these loops, defining and redefining its course, even at times going full circle and cutting itself off where it started, leaving a little island marooned in its midst or a little pond which was once part of the river. Mississippi works this way, and the Army of Corps of Engineers knows all too well that the meandering changes the course of that river, even within observable history. Meandering, wandering, dissipating its energy, never seemingly certain of where it is going. That is my natural analogy today, if you like, my bit of corroboration as Aquinas, who had a high view of the role of analogy, would define the role of analogy in the exposition of Scripture. The people of God are this wandering river. There are more of them now than there were 400 years ago, about a million or two more, We don't know because women and children are not included in the census, and we're going to try not to read too much into that fact. Neither, when you try to plot 
the way that they've gone are really any of the places they were or even the times they were there easy to discern. Archaeology is a science that is based on kings and priests, on royal palaces, beautiful temples, and rich burials. And the people of God making their way across the desert do not leave a big footprint for archaeologists to recover. So every time you go to one of your Bible maps and try to look up one of the places they've stopped, and number 33 rehashes the entire journey, you'll either see nothing or a question mark. Oxford University Press's cartographic department does not much like to plop a place and a name down where they're not really sure there is such a place and a name. And that is the the issue that bedevils us with pre-conquest biblical archaeology. There's very little to find to lead us to where they have been. But they were there, and they have followed this circular meandering path. The time in exile was productive in Egypt, and they have been promised something more than making mud bricks without straw when they left. They have been promised that they will become a nation. And I'll read a little bit. You'll forgive me as I meander back and forth from Exodus to Numbers. This is Exodus 19, verses 4 to 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle wings. This is God speaking to his people and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. A kingdom of priests, and as the Hebrew, and later we recover in Revelation, Uh, Chapter uh, 5, verse 10, you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. What is being said is that Israel is to be not just a kingdom, but a kingdom of kings and priests. They are to live out the dual vocation of being both rulers of creation, if you like, uh, stewards, restoring creation in God's name and to his design, And they are to be priests tuning creation to sing God's praises. It's a very exalted role. And what is key to it is the idea that God is going to make Israel a blessing to the world. But the reality is that God is just as much interested as working and blessing through Israel as he is in blessing, being a blessing to Israel. And Then as now, people have trouble keeping that distinction in mind. And no one more than Israel. They've been promised a land in which to go, a land of milk and honey, which they are going to go and possess now. We're back in numbers. Or as the Hebrew puts it, and we forget that as to they, to repossess the land. For the land is already inhabited. This is a small detail. It is inhabited by people who have grown very attached to it. The Canaanites, the most depraved culture of the ancient Near East, also possessed of one of the simplest languages, 22 characters as opposed to thousands of hieroglyphs. And God in his providence will take the language of the most corrupt nation on earth 
and use it as Hebrew for his revelation. It's one of the wonderful things he does in his providence, and we see this again and again, but we're ahead of ourselves. If the wandering people of God have any idea of the task that God has given them, they keep letting it go from their consciousness. We're 40 years now in numbers after leaving Egypt, not just a few days, and the people are still in the wilderness waiting. We're in the book Numbers, Bar Mitvar, in the wilderness, as it is known in the Hebrew, and we're now leaving that wilderness. So we've come out of Egypt, we've gone to Sinai, we made a journey from Sinai up to Kadesh, and God has kept his people for 40 years, two generations, for their disobedience. They were offered the land to go into, and they've said, no, it's going to be too difficult. They've demurred, and so now they've been permitted to die in the wilderness, if you like, with a few exceptions. Now, let's be sympathetic as these people are given the go-ahead to head out, this time without the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. They have Moses and the tabernacle to lead them. You put a couple of million people on the road in the desert, and water is going to be important, and food, and more than anything, faith. Especially when the route is taking you on a very long detour. The first thing they discover is that they're going to take this long detour east of Edom, because the king there doesn't particularly want them and your million and a half friends to go through his kingdom and certainly not on his highway system. So the people have to retrace their steps all the way south again to the Red Sea and then back up north again. They are not happy campers at this point. Is the Lord among us or not? They are asking himself. And the notion that God builds character by testing those he loves, even when, especially when they are faithful to him, has not dawned on them. Let me expand this. God builds character by testing those he loves. And you're going to get tested whether you're faithful or unfaithful. This is God's providence. But the idea that virtue will be its own reward is not a theological principle that God is keen to advance. The idea that you simply do good and God blesses you and you do ill and God curses you is only true about 50% of the time. And there are reasons for that. You can cause people to do a lot of good if every time they do good they'll be blessed and they will refrain from doing ill if every time they do ill, they will be cursed. We learn it's a Pavlovian matter of conditioning. But God has more in mind than that. He doesn't want to be used as a kind of a slot machine, even to produce good. This is the enigma. God does not want to be used or circumvented, if you like, detoured around by people who are just going to do good on their own. God always wants to be part of the process. So, you do good, and God tests you, and you do better. That's his prerogative. You turn on God and return and test God, and that's something else. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Adam. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness?' 
for there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food, this tasteless manna. These are the presenting issues. God can handle that. The question that gets his attention is the one, again, that is not here spoken. Is the Lord among us or not? And for that question, the Lord has a quick direct response. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they hit the people so that many, they bit the people, sorry, so that many people of Israel died. You asked, here I am, says the Lord. Here I am, the Lord says to the people who are not saying, here I am, Lord, to the Lord, but busy trying to ask something of a Lord that they're not even really looking for. Now, what the people are looking for is this. They want to get to where they think God wants them. They want to get there fast. They are impatient to get on with the task. They dread the battles ahead, but they're ready to move on. They are really motivated, in a way, very nobly. God wants to give them patience on the way, whether they want it or not. The serpents do the trick. And the people come to Moses and they say, we've sinned for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord. Now the Lord does them one better. They want to be free of any further molestation by snakes. God chooses instead to provide a cure for snake bite. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. And Moses does this. He makes this bronze snake, puts it on a pole. The pole is lifted up. Those who have been bitten by the real snakes are cured by gazing upon the bronze snake. This bronze snake later becomes an object of some cult adoration and an idol in its own right, as we see, as we read on in scriptures. But for now, they're simply doing what God asked, and they are blessed with healing. Now let us stop and meander a little here. It's easy to say this is nice, God fixes the problem and moves on. And we say that until this story keeps recurring and always leaving us at a place of puzzlement. What on earth is this bronze serpent really all about? Especially when Jesus gets into the act and claims that symbol as really being all about himself. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What is the cure? The cure is to use that which is killing you to cure you. Now, if you put it in those terms, that's not so strange at all. We do this all the time in natural science. It's the whole principle of immunization. Uh, We used to say in the Episcopal Church that people had enough Christianity there that they were actually immunized against it for life. (laughs) Well, we won't pursue that. But you see how it works. Jesus equates himself here with the serpent with the curse that God has inflicted upon his own people. Jesus says, I am that serpent, not just the serpent on the pole, but the cursed that that serpent represents. I am that curse. Just in the same way as this serpent, a type of the serpent in the garden is lifted up and the curse becomes the cure, so indeed does Jesus lifted up become a cure, but only first by becoming a curse. Where does it say that, you are asking? 
2 Corinthians 5.21, one of my favorite passages, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus becomes for us a curse so that we may be cured of the curse of sin. And sin begins with impatience and with the distrust that God is good to his word. Every time, that is where sin begins. God does not just lay upon Jesus, then, the punishment for our sins. He makes Jesus to become sin itself through and through. And there on the cross to absorb all the sin in the world, to soak it up, to become saturated with it, to become, if you like, a kind of filter in this great flow of humanity, a filter which absorbs all the poisons and the toxins and the sludge and soaks them up and ingests them and becomes pregnant and full of everything that is rotten in humanity. I like very much that image, but I appreciate the fact that I run from it as fast as I can. And we don't tend to see that kind of Jesus on the cross represented very much in our tradition. You see it here and there, especially in the Grunewald altarpiece at Colmar or Isenheim. But mostly, as I've said, our crucifixes have very passive, whole-looking, glowing, gilded Jesuses, the bronze side of the serpent. But what gets Jesus on the cross is his willingness to become the snake side of the serpent. It is therefore uh, that I am very much pleased with the crucifix that David Hooker has made for us. We only recess with it during Lent, but you will see more of it when we get into the Easter season. I was sharing with David my frustration with most crucifixes, which I said were very prosaic. What you see is what you get, a man hanging on a cross, a man not in any evident discomfort generally, let alone a man who is dying from becoming a curse for us. What could convey the text I've quoted? He made him to be sin who knew no sin. David suggested we dip one of our rather prosaic crucifixes into molten wax, a wax that is a dark red-black, like dried blood. That's it over there. The drops of wax also suggested tears, because after David had done that, I was able to assist him with pouring this molten stuff and a very powerful heat gun dripping this wax down onto this figure as we turned it over and over again. It produced all these little bumps all over him, which looked like sores or running sores. And I was very happy with this. <laughs> now we're getting somewhere, I said. Now we're, uh, I may be about to actually get what this text is all about. I mean, I'm all for art in the church if it helps us to do this. The drops of wax also suggested tears, bloody sweat to me as they were going down, pinging onto that corpus. The process also made deformations of the kind with one would associate with rotting flesh, flesh that had been accursed, Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, that tree again, the hanging serpent, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles 
so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Well, I guess that's the text I've actually been preaching today after all. What else is new? But it surely is the text that really ties all these other texts together. These days, it is easy to avoid sin in our churches and the substitution which allowed the death grip of sin to be broken once and for all. There is a giant movement in our time to wiggle free from that classical understanding of substitutionary atonement. Well, I'm all for letting the word guide us into something new and something useful. But we're still left with those texts. And the texts point us to the possibility that we are born with that snake's venom in our veins. It is our DNA. And for that, there is no antidote. We are condemned to death from this same poison. But through Christ's blood and his forgiveness, we are reborn. And in that rebirth, we are finally made immune to sin, to death, and sickness, at least on the other side when the new creation is brought into being by us, though we are still susceptible to sickness and disease and death will be for us the journey, the gateway to that new creation. We've been freed from the finality of this death, the curse of sickness, and all the things which try us so severely in this life. But the way in which we can remember that there's another half to this whole thing, which is that we are to bless others, that we are to be a blessing to others and not just to ourselves, is through that virtue of patience. Patience is related to trust. It is a matter of trusting and learning more and more that whatever your circumstances, whether God seems to be there or not, God is never somewhere else. He is always there. As we were saying in our wonderful class this morning with Alan Jacobs, patience takes courage, and courage is one of those cardinal virtues. The courage to ignore circumstances, to look away from all the dangers, to look away from temptations, to simply, in your mind, shut them out and say they are not there and look instead to the path that lies ahead. And the secret to us building ourselves into that royal priesthood, those kings who will rule, is to begin small and to try to make habits out of the exercise of those virtues. And I suggest that we try to start with patience. I have tried your patience now. I've gone on too long, and for that there is no cure. (laughs) But I would pray us as we go just to consider the gravity of our sin, the cost of the remedy for that sin, and the fact that wherever we are in this world, We are to be kings and priests and nothing less. And if we pray for the patience to begin in small things, look past our circumstances to know that God is especially there in suffering, that he tests us when we have done good, 
not just to punish us for some sin, and that by testing, he makes us stronger. We have much to give thanks for. And it's my experience that whether you want it or not, God will come after you to give you more of that wonderful gift of patience. Amen.